Hi, everyone. I'm Carrie Gann, and this is Health Now, WebMD's podcast about all things health and wellness. Thanks for joining us this week. We've got a great show for you. The phrase artificial intelligence may make you think of futuristic science fiction, but this technology is already part of daily life for many of us. From Siri, Alexa, and other virtual assistants to autocomplete responses when you type. It's powering other inventions on the horizon, like self-driving cars. And healthcare is a new arena where artificial intelligence, or AI, could change the game. Imagine a computer being able to learn everything about your health, your genes, your body chemistry, your environment and behavior, the tests you've had, and the medicines you've taken. It could analyze every medical study that's relevant to your condition, read scans, take notes, update your chart, file paperwork, and more leaving your doctor free to have a real conversation with you about how you're feeling and what's important to you. That's the future that Dr. Eric Topol has conjured in his new book about AI in medicine. He hopes this technology can help doctors create a more personal, more human relationship with the patients they care for. Here's his conversation with WebMD's chief medical officer, Dr. John White. Dr. Eric Topol is a world-renowned cardiologist, geneticist, and digital medicine researcher. He is the founder and director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla, California. He also serves as the chief academic officer for Scripps Health, a professor of genomics at the Scripps Research Institute, and a senior consultant at the Division of Cardiovascular Diseases at Scripps Clinic. He's also editor-in-chief of Medscape and theheart.org. And Dr. Tobel has written several New York Times bestsellers, but we're going to talk about your new book titled Deep Medicine, How Artificial Intelligence Can Make Healthcare Human Again. Congratulations on the book. Oh, thanks. I am really thrilled about how well it's been received. And in the book, you suggest that AI can improve the accuracy and diagnosis of treatment and illnesses, restoring compassion to medicine. How is AI going to help me provide better care for patients. Right. Well, in the in the book, I have a chapter I call the, the Clinicians Without Patterns, and that would be like family doctors and primary care physicians because they don't have a scan or slide to read or a skin rash uh, necessarily. They, they have to basically, they're the front lines of medicine. Now, imagine this. You never had to touch a keyboard. Your notes were all synthesized from your conversation with the patient and all the tests that were needed and any other administrative tasks were done by voice and you could just spend more time with each patient. That's where we're headed. That's already being shown to be possible. And that's what's so exciting. And you reference in the book some examples in ER care where AI could synthesize a lot of the existing information in the chart or electronic record. And then when a patient comes in presenting with certain symptoms, it could perhaps prioritize or help identify what might be the cause. I mean, that's where I think could be extremely compelling for both physicians and patients. I want to bring up this issue back to compassion and empathy and how AI might improve that. And, and you talk a lot about that in the book, especially in the latter half. And you have this line in there that people are more comfortable talking to virtual humans than they are real ones. What about the argument that we should be choosing different types of persons to go into medicine? 
and essentially change how we train physicians as opposed to creating an AI system to help address some of these issues of, of really communicating with patients and, and understanding what's really on their mind. I'm with you. And, and in that section in the last chapter about deep empathy, you know, I write about the fact that we're picking future doctors for the wrong reasons. We're still fixated on finding brainiacs, finding people with great test scores on their medical college admission tests or great grade point averages. What we should be doing is looking for people who exude empathy, who have great emotional intelligence and have the communicative interpersonal skills. And we need to pivot to that because that is going to be the, the, the qualities that we're going to look to because so much of the other task work is going to be outsourced, is going to be pre-screened. The data will be aggregated um, you know, through machine algorithms to help make this human bond uh, facilitated. Now, you were one of those brainiacs, I assume. <laughs> Look at all that you have accomplished, so you, you recognize the importance of empathy and compassion. Do you feel that's something that you've always had in your training, or, or really have you started to learn that as you've you know, gone about in your career and have had time to look back and reflect? Uh, that's a great question, John. I, I know that when I was in medical school, and now remember this is, uh, you know, I'm an old dog, so this was in the late 70s, and I was at University of Rochester and George Engel, and basically we spent a lot of time just listening to patients, observing patients. It was a lot of time. And so I was brought up, you know, in a small medical school with just over 90 students, and I, I, I got inculcated with the right ideas. But as I move forward through this era of the business of medicine and subsequent four decades, I watched, I participated in the steady erosion of less time, less and less time, less presence, less, you know, true, genuine communication. And I, I, I've watched this and it's been appalling. So I think, um, I know why I, and I know why most people go into medicine is really to provide care, to, to, to really be, uh, uh, to know and listen to a, a patient's life story, not just look at their data or their scan or whatever. So I think we can get back to that because that's what it's all about. That's the real mission. Right. And we've lost our way. I love your section on dieting when you, when you start off, despite all these advancements we've had in cardiovascular medicines and diagnostic tools, that the drug we all take multiple times a day that needs to be personalized most is food. And you suggest that AI can actually tell us what we individually should eat. Can you explain that a little? Well, yeah, the, the, this is exciting because not that we're there yet, but AI cracked the case about the fact that each of our uh, individualized response to food exists. So it really, uh, the, the pioneering work occurred at the Wiseman Institute in Israel, whereby they gave thousands of people now the exact amount of the same food where they ate at the exact time, and they showed that their glucoses in response to that food were all over the map. And that required bringing in lots of different data, you know, data from not just the glucose, 
but also, you know, the gut microbiome, labs, uh, the physical activity, sleep, uh, you know, all these different data sets that had to be uh, analyzed with machine learning algorithms. So that set the foundation now for being able to do that realistically in, in people. And, and in the book, I go through, you know, my two-week experiment where I found all these glucose spikes and I found the putative reasons why I have them and what foods I should or shouldn't eat. You know, it, it's not ready yet, but it's getting inching way closer. It's, it, I think it's really a, a major step forward, and we wouldn't have gotten there without the ability to uh, analyze all this data uh, with AI. So we do have all this excitement, as you say, about AI and, and deep learning. But w one quote, and you do have a lot of quotes in the book, which I love, often introducing chapters, which seems maybe not to fit with the book, so I wanted to ask you. You say AIs, and you're quoting someone else, AIs are nowhere near as smart as a rat. So if we're going to rely upon AI to help us choose our diets, to help us live better lives, uh, I have a sense of what you mean by that, but I wanted you to share with our listeners. Well, what does that really mean? Yeah, so that's a quote from Jan LeCun, who, by the way, just uh, in recent weeks received the equivalent of the Nobel Prize uh, in computer science, which is the, the pioneering efforts in deep learning, this, this extraordinary type of uh, artificial intelligence. So what he meant by that quote about not smart as a rat uh, is that AI is a narrow story. So if I give a scan, it will tell me, you know, what's potentially what I'm looking for on the scan. Like, is there a lung nodule on a chest x-ray, that kind of thing. But AI has no way to contextualize things. You know, it doesn't, doesn't able to see anything, the person. It isn't able to, you know, uh, have a, understand a real story. So it has limits, and we have to understand its limits and exploit its strengths. So one of the things that's so remarkable, John, is you can train uh, AI to see things that humans will never be able to see. So a, a great example of that is, you know, um, the retina. And if you show a retina expert, is this from a male or a female? And their chance of getting it right is 50-50. But but if you train an algorithm with you know hundreds of thousands of retinas with the knowing if it's a, a female or male, the accuracy then turns out to be over ninety seven percent. Wow. And, and we don't even know why. We don't know what features the machine sees that that it, the retina experts can't. Now, obviously, there are better ways to tell whether it's a male or female than looking at the retina with a machine algorithm. But but just to, I'm just trying to give you a sense like you know, potassium on your watch by your cardiogram to give you an accurate potassium level without any blood because machines, are, again, are trained. So these are the narrow tests. But a rat, of course, could do much more, you know. So if we just start to think about the narrow things that you could train a deep learning algorithm, it's extraordinary. And in fact, we're just starting to see, you know, you, you, the imagination here of things that can be trained. I, I mean, I'm saying things I never would have envisioned were possible. I want to thank you, Dr. Topol. Your new book, Deep Medicine, How Artificial Intelligence Can Make Healthcare Human Again. If we go along the way that you say we should, I, I do think we'll get there, and, and that'll be good for everyone. Oh, thanks so much. I really enjoyed the discussion with you. Ah. 
caffeine. Raise your hand if you just can't start the day without it. You might not be able to see them, but there are a lot of hands in the air over at WebMD. And since caffeine plays a role in so many of our lives, we thought we'd take a deeper look at just how it affects our bodies. First, and most obvious, it wakes you up and keeps you alert. But overdo it and you could get jittery and anxious. You might even stay awake all night. The smart move is to cut it off by mid-afternoon. While your body doesn't store caffeine, it does hang on to it for about six hours. Even a little bit can cause insomnia in some people. And it might affect you differently as you get older. The reason it keeps you awake is that it's a stimulant. This means it can make your heart beat faster. It might even feel like it skips a beat. But this isn't a problem for most people. Doctors used to think you should stay away from caffeine if you have a problem like an irregular heartbeat, but now they say it's okay to have some. Just be sure to check with your doctor first. You may also notice you're making more trips to the bathroom after you have your morning cup of coffee or tea. And that's because caffeine is a diuretic, which is a medical way to say it makes you pee. It's worse when you first start drinking caffeine, but it may get better over time as your body gets used to it. And if you're a woman around age 50, you might want to cut back on the caffeine. It can make symptoms of menopause, like hot flashes, worse. One of the more serious side effects is that caffeine boosts your blood pressure. Doctors aren't quite sure why. It may block a hormone that keeps your arteries open and holds blood pressure down. Or it could cause you to release more adrenaline, a hormone that raises blood pressure. Your doctor can help you figure out what's a good amount for you. Caffeine also has a weird relationship with headaches. If you've ever tried to quit it cold turkey, you know the result is a painful withdrawal headache. That's because caffeine narrows the blood vessels in your brain. When you cut off the supply, they rebound to their normal size and it hurts. On the other hand, caffeine is a common ingredient in many migraine and headache medications because it helps them work better and eases the pain. Alright, now for some good news. If you're into endurance sports like running, biking, or swimming, caffeine can be your friend. It can help you go faster and with less muscle pain. But don't drink it, you'll want to take it in capsule form. Aim for 200 to 400 milligrams, which is about the same you'll get from 2 to 4 cups of coffee. Higher amounts than that don't seem to do more for you. Caffeine may also help you recover from the workout faster because it makes and restocks a type of body fuel called glycogen. This process works best if you pair it with forms of carbs like those in sports gels, energy bars, and sports drinks. But don't go too heavy or you'll be up all night and lose the benefits of all that exercise. Caffeine may also prevent gallstones and work against inflammation in your body. And early studies show it could help hold off some neurological diseases like Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, Huntington's, MS, and epilepsy but we need more research to be sure. So how much caffeine is too much? It depends on a bunch of things, like your body weight, the medications you take, and your overall health. But in general, up to 400 milligrams, or about four cups, is okay, unless you're pregnant or have heart trouble. Try not to go over 600 milligrams. Call your doctor if you notice symptoms like stomach problems, heart palpitations, headaches, or muscle twitches. And if you've decided it's time to kick the caffeine habit, check the show notes for some tasty coffee alternatives. Social media has brought many interesting new terms into our lives like selfie, friending, defriending, and now FOMO. If you haven't heard of it, FOMO stands for fear of missing out the feeling that everyone else is having a way better time or a way better life than you are. Social media didn't create this problem, but getting a daily peek into other people's online lives definitely makes it worse, especially this time of year, when your newsfeed starts to fill up with fabulous vacation photos while you sweat it out at home. So what can you do about it? 
We're checking in with psychologist Seth Gillihan for tips on how to get our FOMO under control. Seth is a clinical professor of psychology at the University of Pennsylvania and the author of the CBT Deck, which shares tips from cognitive behavioral therapy you can use to help yourself stay calm, be in the moment, and take action for a better life. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Gillihan. You're welcome, Carrie. I'm always happy to talk to you. And let's just start off. What is FOMO? Can you give us a description of it? Sure. So it's really the this the fear that other people are having a lot more fun than I am, that I'm being left out. And so it can lead to kind of a, a in some cases, almost constant state of, of worrying about what am I missing? What am I missing? And then that, you know, driving certain behaviors and, and efforts to try to, to always stay in the loop. And what are some of the ways that FOMO can affect us? Well, the number one thing that we see now is just a really intense pattern of social media use. So, you know, always having to to be on on Instagram or Facebook and, you know, see what my friends are doing or having to constantly check and see if people are looking at my account. Am I in the loop or am I am I missing out on something? And it can be you know, actual live events, like things that you can actually go to and be a part of, or it could be you know, an online uh, experience, like a chat that your friends are having, or just the nice reference you made in the introduction to these pictures of vacations coming up and this, you know, this feeling that, that everyone else is having a better life than I am. Everyone is more fabulous and more interesting than me. Yes, which if we are making those kinds of comparisons all the time, then it's not surprising that we see what we do in terms of you know, actually higher levels of anxiety and feeling less satisfied in our lives when we have a lot of, of FOMO, even feeling less secure in our close relationships. And you know, this is something that I found in my own research is having basically less, sort of this, this irony that the more we're afraid of missing out, we actually do end up not having our needs fulfill like our need for close connection to others. So high FOMO is linked with, with lower satisfaction of our psychological needs. It's a, to me, an unusual idea in psychology where the name is so straightforward, like we all know exactly what it means and it has kind of a cute name, but it really can have pretty serious effects. For sure. It sounds like it can really add up and affect your life. Do you have any examples from your practice or other parts of your life of some of the behaviors that FOMO drives in people? Yes. You know, when I was teaching in the college near here, I mean, students, I think, found it really hard to put their phones away during class. And it was an explicit rule I had. And and if there was you know, even a second's pause in what was happening in class, I would see so many people you know, kind of dip into their bag and, and pull out their phone and you know, maybe send a quick response to something. And, and even among people that have come to me for treatment at times, uh, I've, I've seen people kind of sneaking a glance, like, you know, there's a, they get some kind of alert and want to know it's an hour. Obviously they're paying for the hour and, but they're, it, it's hard to put that down, even, even to block out that that time to have a you know an hour long conversation about something or or to sleep you know people who are taking their phones with them to bed so in the middle of the night they can can check and make sure they don't miss out on anything so again this i hate to uh, to keep uh, repeating this idea but but in the process they're really missing out on i think fundamentally on peace of mind on being able to just 
be rather than be kind of constantly on this, the hamster wheel of you know, checking what else might be happening. We talk a lot about it in terms of social media, but what are some other situations that could bring it on? Well, you know, Carrie, I knew I had a fear of missing out long before, you know, it was called FOMO. And for me, I mean, this, this showed up, this is probably the late 90s, and there wasn't the kind of social media stuff like there is now. But I think a lot of people probably experienced what I did, which was this feeling, you know, usually on a, a Friday or a Saturday night, just feeling like no matter what I did, if I hung out with friends or if we went out to a bar or a restaurant, that everybody else at that bar or with that group of friends or that party, everyone was having a better time than I was. And you know, not because it was being posted somewhere on social media, but just walking by and seeing like, oh, that's, that looks like fun. But it was never ending because no matter what I was doing, I guess it's always the kind of grass is greener on the other side of the fence sort of feeling. So it really can show up in any part of our lives because, I mean, it's this is so true with social media. We tend to see the best parts of other people's lives. And whereas we know that we know all, all the bits of our own, including you know, so many ordinary moments and sort of the, the lackluster days that we don't broadcast to others. So if there's any positive experience that other people can have that we think we, we might not have, there's a potential for FOMO. I think of younger people as experiencing FOMO, but I think all of us do to some extent. We just, we're just afraid of missing out on different things. You know, for, for those of us who are, who are working, it's fear of missing out on uh, an important email or an opportunity uh, or you know, a, a call from someone who's expecting to be able to, to reach us at any time. For you know, parents, it might be uh, fear that we're going to miss out on a, a text from a sitter who's you know, telling us that there's some kind of emergency. So, so this you know, being able to be connected is such a it's a double-edged sword. I mean, the fact that we can connect over the internet is allowing us to have this conversation right now. But at the same time, it does have these this this other edge that we need to think about. It's true. You're, there's the, always the pressure to be always on for whatever reason. That's right, which creates a kind of ex expectation on the one hand and also an anxiety for a lot of people. Well, if I can check, then maybe I should. And if I think about checking, I should. What would you recommend uh, people do to stop worrying or, or try to get themselves to stop worrying about what other people are doing and just get on with their lives? The first thing I always suggest, and this is related to the idea of mindfulness practice, is just to focus on what's in front of you. Because again, you know, there's this obvious missing out that we do when we're focused on what we might be missing out on. And so if we can just come back to what's actually a part of our lives and invest our energy there, we end up getting so much more satisfaction out of life. We enjoy those things. And if we're doing what we're doing, and really focusing our minds there, FOMO kind of dissolves. So that's the number, number one thing that I recommend. And, and, and also just figuring out what your actual needs are. Nobody has a need to, to be on social media. Like that, that's not a deep psychological need that we have. And so we want to step back and, and ask ourselves, what's driving that need? And is there a, is there a more satisfying way to fulfill it? Is there a more meaningful way to fulfill it. And just on a practical level, maybe take a, a vacation from social media. Press pause because the more we're on social media, the more we generate that, that kind of checking cycle where we feel compelled to see what we might be missing out on. We check 
and that generates some some feelings that then leads us to do more of that in the future. So I think we need to take some kind of concrete step to actually stop that so we can break that cycle. I think it's a great practice to you know, spend, maybe set an hour out of your day where you just notice how many times you have an urge to check your phone and you don't fulfill it. Because if you, if you don't gratify that need, you start to notice, wow, I'm having that urge a lot. And rather than responding to it, you can just kind of sit with it and it actually passes. Dr. Gillihan, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you, Carrie. Okay, it's time for our tweak of the week. Follow the 20-20-20 rule to prevent eye strain. When your eyes are glued to a screen, you blink only about a third to a half as much as you would otherwise, and this can make your eyes tired and dry. So when you're using a phone, tablet, or computer, take a 20-second break every 20 minutes and look at an object 20 feet away. It can be hard to figure out what's 20 feet away when you're in the house or an office, so try looking at something outside a window. Do this all day and your eyes will thank you. That's all for this week. Thanks so much for tuning in. Hope you join us next time. <laughs>